0: The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times, entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep, I'm Jay Costa. A blurry, seemingly bipedal figure emerges from either a forest or from behind a snowy mountain, only to just wander off back into the cover of those trees or mountains. It's an image that's been caught from the peripheral of thousands of human eyes. Whether they call it Sasquatch, Yeti, or Bigfoot, this elusive being has created its own legacy. And today's guest has some insight. He's a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. He studies human evolution, survey of living primates with a research emphasis on the evolution of human bipedalism. Today's guest is Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Meldrum examines and reconstructs the behaviors and the morphology from fossilized remains of our ancestors. And he happens to be one of the foremost Bigfoot researchers out there. We talk about so much in this episode, like how humans have adapted to walk on two legs. And gosh, you know what? Let's just get right into it. So join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Meltram. I truly can't thank you enough. It, it's it's an honor.
1: Great. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, our pleasure.
0: And if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners and our viewers who you are and what mm-hmm. it
1: is you do. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, in this capacity. I'm a professor of anatomy and anthropology here at Idaho State University in Pocatello, Idaho, down oh. southeastern Idaho. I that means I teach human gross anatomy in the health professions programs, full body dissection, um, lab based uh, course, and uh, as well as other other uh anatomy courses uh in the various programs, and occasionally get the opportunity to teach some anthro in the anthropology department, so you know, some human evolution, survey of living primates, that sort of thing, which is always a fun. Uh, distraction and uh, and change of pace. My research emphasis then because of my emphasis in physical anthropology is in the evolution of human bipedalism. How it is that we came to be adapted to walk on two legs instead of all four or to climb in the trees uh, any longer, you uh, know, any better than we do right now. That it's, um, I mean, we still have quite a legacy that allows us to clamber about and uh, you know, jungle gyms are an important element of any playground equipment for that reason, obviously. So uh, as uh, and in that capacity, I, you know, I, I uh, examine and uh, uh, reconstruct the behaviors and the morphology from fossilized remains of our, our ancestors that requires a lot of comparative data. So I uh, Conduct studies on both human subjects, but also non-human primate subjects, observational force plate electromyography, etc. Uh, and of course, the footprints have taken on a real uh, import, uh important role, obviously now. And um, uh, as as rare as they are for hominins in the fossil record, um, about. Oh, my goodness. It's 1995-96. In 95, I was invited. Well, even roll it back even further, clear back to 1968 when I was a youngster living in Spokane, Washington, which happened to be one of the first venues that Roger Patterson publicly showed his documentary showcasing that 60-second film clip. And so, uh, a young as a young fifth grader, enthralled with biology already, natural history, insect collections, bringing snakes home and other wayward animals and so forth <laughs> to my mother's chagrin. Sometimes, um, this this really embodied uh, everything that I was fascinated in. I mean, in addition, to natural history, I was fascinated by human evolution, by um, you know, cavemen, by uh, by all things mysterious as well, and it just all rolled into one in in, in this uh, this image of a figure walking across the silver screen there, and I was enthralled. I mean, I really became uh, became uh, uh, almost obsessed with the study of this. And it, of course, at that time, there was very limited materials, very limited public knowledge. This was clearly the first time I'd ever heard of Bigfoot before. <laughs> So that interest waxed and waned over the years. I, I learned a lot. I dug a lot. I got acquainted with the publications of Ivan Sanderson and John Green. You know, I was delighted when John Napier eventually published a book, a, a book by a bona fide Ph.D. primatologist. and uh, uh, But eventually uh, it, it sort of plateaued and it was rekindled uh, dramatically when I was invited to comment on a piece of video footage that was shot in Northern California again. So we're back to Northern California. Only this time it was in uh, shot from uh inside an RV filled with uh young people filming uh a cable TV show sort of an adventure travel uh travel adventure kind of show and um I thought oh this will be I was invited to, to evaluate it thought this will be a fun exercise to expose the zipper and um ply my you know now my my uh hard earned skills in comparative anatomy and locomotion and uh, and I was taken aback because I couldn't find the zipper and instead I kept I kept noticing details subtle details of anatomy and and uh, kinematics of the movement that were really quite intriguing and gave me uh, you know real serious pause uh, and then that just sort of snowballed into a number of things which, excuse me, which eventually led to my paying a surprise visit to a, a fellow that lived in in Walla Walla that I had become aware of through a publication that depicted the sort of uh, legacy of, of that region uh, of uh, southeastern Washington, northeastern Oregon. And as a result of that surprise visit, it turned out that he had, uh, he alleged, to have discovered a set of footprints that very morning. I mean, this gentleman had quite a history, and that was why I was interested in talking with him. He had an extensive collection of footprint casts, many of which had figured very prominently in the writings of of uh, Doctor Grover Krantz, uh, so sort of my predecessor in, in this <laughs> narrow niche that I currently occupy and um, so uh, a, a, at his invitation uh, I was traveling with my brother we went up and took a look at these footprints and uh, yeah it just I mean literally uh, took me aback it set me set me back on my heels because I I must say I was still harboring a lot of skepticism I was uh, and, and I had been offered all sorts of uh, uh, friendly advice about the, the character of this gentleman, Paul <laughs> Freeman. Um, and uh, so I was uh, very cautious. But here were multiple, I mean, 35, 45, a long line of, of clear tracks in the mud that were unmistakable. They either were real or they were hoaxed. There was no misidentification, no mis, no ambiguity if these were you know, just potholes or washouts or some some other natural artifact and so uh you know i'm kind of pinching myself figuratively how how could he have done this i mean i mean i was impressed with what i was seeing there there was um there was clear evidence of a very animated trackway that is you um, you could see the pressure ridges the the tension cracks and so forth. It was interesting because I just got an email this morning from uh, someone who was reading one of Tom Brown's books. Tom Brown is a renowned tracker. um, And uh, somewhat controversial in his, in his approach and some of his claims, but nevertheless, he's, uh, he's written quite a series of books. uh, Some of which I've found very useful, but this one, the, uh, The fellow who sent this to me, he said, what about this? Um, There's a passage from one of his books where he says, Tom Brown says, several times people have shown me that they were um, uh, what they thought were the tracks of Bigfoot, the legendary Sasquatch of the Pacific Northwest. It took very little study to discover that they were fakes. Why? There was no life in them. There was no variation in the pressure releases. Um, I'm not saying Bigfoot doesn't exist, I hope it does, but so far the Bigfoot tracks I've seen were made by pranksters, usually large men striding through the woods with s- stamps strapped to their feet. <laughs> and he goes on, and this, this is a, I mean, it's an astute statement, it's just misapplied. The difference between a stamp and a normal footprint is phenomenal. When a live animal's foot comes down, it ripples, it clenches, twists, and deforms the soil in so many wonderful ways that the track itself seems alive long after the foot has left its mark. That, you know, that's really a, a very uh, prosaic description of it. But, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's spot on in that description. However, he's completely off base when it comes to the application of that attitude to the um the footprint evidence now i have to acknowledge i don't know what he has seen and it's very possible that the tracks that he was shown as is the case with not not that many i mean the 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 outright hoaxes are few and far between more often there's ambiguity simply because of the poor quality of the of the track itself, the conditions, and so forth, or there's just um, uh, over interpretation of uh, and misidentification. Uh, bear tracks, you know, the common candidate because it the hind foot is relatively flat or plantigrade and all five toes are in contact with the ground. But I suspect, because to my knowledge, and, and nothing he has ever said or written suggests otherwise, he has never had. Or availed himself had the opportunity, or availed himself of the opportunity to examine an extensive trackway, because those qualified to evaluate them who have, at the very least, reserve um, a judgment, or are, are are quite intrigued, you know, and uh, and and would say the same things, just as I, you know, because I I don't want to. Uh, uh, to my own horn, but on the other hand, I have credentials. <laughs> and so when I tell you that I was impressed by this trackway uh, outside of walla- Walla because of its animation, because of all of the things that he describes that are so phenomenal, you can you you know to to the trained eye, you can see this creature actually walking. you can you can imagine the foot progressing through that step and um and so, uh, yeah, I was, uh, man, I was, th- there was a moment, and I've said this repeatedly, but there was a moment when it was as if two little imps were on my shoulders. And one is saying, do you really want to, or asking, do you really want to go down this path? Because I, I uh, was fully aware of all the grief and all the ridicule and persecution that Dr. Krantz had, had been the brunt of. On the other hand, the little other little imp was saying, how could you not? <laughs> How could you walk away from this? This is, this is one of the most fascinating questions of, of science and especially anthropology today. Uh, and here is, I mean, this was not just your run of the mill uh, discovery of a footprint. It was a trackway. It was an animated trackway. It was a fresh trackway, so fresh that it still uh, harbored uh, signs of dermatoglyphics, skin ridge detail. That uh, was subtly preserved there in some of the tracts because of the very fine substrate that it was walking through. This very um, uh, fine uh, glacial lus that's predominant in the soils there in southeastern Washington and all the way down across Idaho. We're very familiar with it here. You know, it's unfortunate when when there's less vegetation to hold it down, then it gets carried away by the wind. And so we, you know, we have dust, lots of dust. Uh in southern Idaho. Anyway, I'm I'm kind of rambling and I, I certainly no. want it to be a two-way no. chase here, but <laughs> no, this is this is fascinating. This is the stuff
0: that I, I absolutely love. Yeah. And especially when you describe like just how that print has life to it and where you can see the, the creases and the ridges of of yeah. the skin and everything else. Yeah. You know, I, I would I would hope, you know, most folks that would want to research are assuming positive intent. They're not going in there thinking first and foremost it's going to be a hoax or maybe that is the maybe it is that maybe you go in with the preconceived notion that you're going in to debunk it like you said earlier looking for that zipper right. sure. and then so now if you see evidence that changes is that kind of more along the lines of how you approach that
1: well well certainly i mean in in science in in the you know strictest interpretation of the philosophy of science the uh, and 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 uh, theoretical is not always practical, but theoretically, uh, we're not able to demonstrate. You know, every affirmative case we can't prove something by showing all of the positive results, and so it's more pragmatic if you can falsify, if you can show that one exception to your your hypothesis, the generalization emerging from your hypothesis. And only then are you justified in elaborating upon your hypothesis, making it more complex. This is, this is the uh, age-old misapplication, misapprehension of Occam's razor. Occam's razor doesn't assert that the simplest a- answer is most likely to be correct. It simply is acknowledging this systematic uh process this of of uh incrementally adding to the complexity in order to test your hypotheses and attempt to falsify them in an orderly fashion instead of a haphazard here and there and everywhere so instead of jumping to the more most complicated you know bigfoot is an interdimensional shape-shifting time-jumping uh alien from alpha centauri um there's a lot of variables added there which uh which if you roll all it back we should start out with bigfoot is as it appears a large bipedal primate that seems to be quite adapted to the montane forests of the temperate regions of the northern hemisphere you know and so um until you can falsify that you're not justified to so so the approach there is a role of of um And well, it is, it really isn't even a manifestation of skepticism. It's, it's a, um, you, you can, I mean, you're, as scientists, we always, um, we always collect evidence that, that supports our hypothesis, but we're supposed to be looking for as well, exceptions that may overturn our hypothesis and so uh, that doesn't mean that we're skeptical of it. It means that we want to understand it better and refine it. People who go out, you know, in this age, uh, the, the the ideological skeptics, people who edit magazines called Skeptical Inquirer or Skeptics Magazine, who wear skepticism like an red arm badge, you know, uh, armband, is uh, that they've missed the point. That's the like approaching science like as a keyboard and you're just going to sit there and pound one key incessantly. I mean not only does it not produce anything worthwhile or 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 um uh, you know um uplifting but it also is really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> Those people are not not very interesting to have around because they ignore everything else. I mean they become so focused on their uh pet mm-hmm. objection it's like uh, we had. Uh, well, here, here's a, an example. And uh, I spoke what recently at the University of Wyoming, at the invitation of a a member of the anthropology department. And I gave a little presentation to his classroom and a small group discussion. And then, as part of the uh, the visit, I also um, presented to the entire campus um, uh, community and and the uh, Public community was invited as well, and it was a pretty good turnout. It was a good. There's a lot of interest, even though this was far over in uh, southeastern Wyoming. Most of the action is over here in the western side of the state. Um, but in, in any case, there was a point where there was a question from the audience, and it was actually from the department chairman, and and he is a forensic archaeologist. So I mean, his career is focused on the trace of activities of habitations and so forth in people's daily um, uh, lives. So he was interested in that perspective, from that perspective. And and of course, one of the common questions is where's the physical remains? Where's the, you know, from his perspective, where's the physical trace, the physical evidence of the presence of of this entity? And I, I offered the apologist's, explanation which is a reasonable one i mean the first the first it might as well because i'm sure this might come up and your viewers be interested but the first issue is uh the rarity of these creatures there just aren't very many i mean some people are, are operating under the misapprehension that they're you know there are, con, are confabs of uh Sasquatch out in the woods, you know, it's they get together for parties and so forth. But no, they're not. They're they're probably extremely solitary in their movements and foraging and their behaviors, and and very far ranging based on the repeat appearance of recognizable individuals on the basis primarily of their footprints, but even sometimes there are some that have been reported with distinctive color or a distinctive marking. And, and then you, you hear that uh, other witnesses independently noting that same thing. And by plotting those on the map, you get an idea that they must have a pretty wide, and it makes sense, a pretty, uh, far ranging, uh, home, uh, home range. And, uh, you know, on the order of perhaps as much as a thousand square miles, which is, is quite respectable. And well, it seems a lot but you know, really you stop thinking about it's 30 miles by 30 miles, basically. Sure. So and uh, so it's really not as a crow flies to find tracks that are separated by 40 miles is not unprecedented at all right um so there's that factor then of course there's the uh, uh, natural history factors and the physical factors the the fact that we're talking about um, a large bodied uh long lived primate if if we can extrapolate well both from uh suggestive evidence, again, from the repeat appearances of recognizable footprints, you know, we have examples of adults that uh, are on, uh, you know, are, are making their presence known over a period of uh, of several decades. So, you know, you add the developmental years on top of that, then you've got something that's at least 30, 40, I would suggest even even more because there's a positive correlation of longevity with body mass. And if you look across the great apes and humans, the, the life, including humans, because, but, but consider it from the point of view before civilized health care and nutrition and and sanitation and so forth, um, you know, 45 to 50, 55, 60 in that range uh, was not, was common for, for humans as well as the other great apes the oldest gorilla had been and i've got to update my 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 quick recall but the oldest was gorgeous the gorilla in the salt lake zoo 62 years old when she passed but just recently there was a, a youtube video about a, a, another uh, gorilla and i honestly can't remember where but it was uh, 65 i think she was celebrating her 65th birthday they had a big marzipan uh, cake for her and that she was gobbling down. (laughs) So anyway, so there's those factors. Then there's also the, um, the physical factors where these creatures inhabit wet coniferous forests where the soils are remarkably acidic and the preservation of bone is, is rare. I mean, you, you contemplate, we're talking about, you know, let's just talk about here, my home state of Idaho. There's, um, I would estimate there's maybe between oh, uh, 75 and 100 Sasquatch based on um, the available habitat and the potential home range that we're talking about. By comparison, there's uh, 30 to 35,000 black bear. Now, you, you know, you think you start thinking in terms of those scales, and, and I haven't even looked up the data for. Um, Say deer in the state, but there's probably hundreds of thousands of deer, and yet you know, are we tripping over carcasses every year? One one friend of mine did ask uh, a DNR uh, wildlife uh, resource officer in his home state of uh, Minnesota, and they gave him a figure of of uh, ten to twenty thousand winter kill of deer annually you know, that's a lot. And so, but, but again, springtime, do you go out on your hike down the trail and trip over a skeleton here and find a skull there? No, they're, they're processed remarkably well. So back to uh, Wyoming, this department chairman had asked me these questions. I, I offered a little more abbreviated discussion or uh, answer than that, actually. But, uh, that later that evening at dinner, uh, in the conversation, he was just right across from me, and I said, by the way, I just meant to ask, did you find that answer, that response, apologetic though it was, at all satisfying? And he looked up, and he said, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I, rather than, you know, dragging out the arguments again and, and laying them on the table, I just said, well, you know, I find it quite interesting that people who adopt a rather skeptical position often have their favorite missing piece of data and they focus on that to the exclusion of everything else and uh, and he, and he goes everything else what what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> I go I, I just about said you were sitting there. In my uh, during my presentation, were you listening? Or were you? I didn't say that. I just said, "Well, I mean, I just said during my presentation, there I, I presented quite a bit. I, I, from my perspective, from my uh, um, uh, experience and expertise, it would be the footprint evidence first and foremost. That's the most compelling and by far the most uh, prolific um, uh, of, of evidence is there to consider." His response just floored me. Oh. I'm not an expert in footprints. (laughs) And then I did say, well, I am. I am. Don't you think that you should, uh, that I deserve the deference of my expertise that I would offer you uh, when it came to a question of forensic archaeology and the trace, trace evidence? And that that changed the tone of the conversation. I mean, obviously the whole table was listening to the conversation, but and uh, I think they might have been taken aback slightly <laughs> by by my uh, blunt response. But but it's so it was so transparent how biased. And I always have to, you know, I think about those experiences because and I and I try to self reflect. All right, Jeff, you know what biases are you harboring, and and are you looking at this? Uh, are you looking at this with a, an open mind and with, a, uh, you know, an eye that, uh, willing to consider an alternate interpretation or an alternate point of view? And, you know, I, you know, no one can do it perfectly. No one can be completely unbiased, but uh, we're, we're certainly the product of our experience, but, but uh, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. I've, you know, I've had some, some uh, give and takes with, with uh, ideological skeptics out there. I mean, (laughs) for example, Michael Shermer, you know, there's a name that people recognize. He, uh, because of my participation in this, in this investigation, of course, my naysayers uh, took every opportunity to, to create situations of confrontation and challenge and and in an attempt to belittle and so forth. And, and so one of my most vocal critics was a, an instructor in the physics department and he had arranged for Michael Shermer to come and speak to the physics department. But and then it also there was, a again, a, similarly a, a university-wide presentation. And coincidentally, the director of the museum had uh, made good on a promise she had made to me uh, there was kind of an interesting history of of competition between regional museums here, uh, and in order to um, prevent me from appearing to support another museum in another city here regionally, she promised that the exhibit that they had offered me the opportunity to develop on Sasquatch that she would do here at the Idaho Museum of Natural History on campus. So coincidentally, and to the chagrin of many people on campus, when Michael Shermer came, here's here's this big exhibit. I mean, uh, not not big, but here's the the temporary uh, transient exhibit on Sasquatch. But they had put this huge banner (laughs) on the side of the Museum building with a recreation of, of of Sasquatch based on a interpretation of the image and image from the Patterson-Gimlin film, and with the words, you know, how do we know what they what she tried to do to to s- sort of do an end run about a rather than a, a frontal assault on it. She uh, approached the subject from a, an epistemological perspective. Mm how do we know things? You know, what, what is knowledge? What is faith? What is belief? What is myth? You know, and, and drew heavily on from Carl Sagan's, the demon haunted world, which, you know, has some uh, um, qualities, but as soon as someone uh, like even Sagan lumped Sasquatch in with parapsychology and, and UFOs and, you know, uh, uh, transcendental meditation. Then, as far as I'm concerned, they have shot themselves in the foot. They don't have credibility. If they don't know the distinctions there, then how can you trust their discrimination of of these other phenomenon and their their evaluation? You know, it's 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 always frustrating. And and that was exactly what was the case with Shermer. They they um, were going to take him. One of the the fellows who teaches. Uh, he's in the English department and he teaches um, a class on pseudoscience. And of course, they have a lecture on Bigfoot, about, of course, cryptozoology. And so he invited Shermer uh, on a tour of the Idaho Museum of Natural History featuring the Bigfoot exhibit. So he calls me up and asks me if I would like to attend and i said sure this will be interesting well you know so i came prepared i brought a copy of my book and at that time this was this even predated the the uh, explosion of literature not all of which is of you know on par with uh, the the past publications of serious investigators and and academics but um But if you were to count yourself as informed on the subject of Sasquatch, it would be fair to assume that you had read my book. And again, not not, uh, touting my own uh, uh, laurels, but uh, that's a reasonable assumption. I would expect that. And yet, but I took one just in case. And sure (laughs) enough, he didn't have a clue. I said, have you seen my book or have you read my book? no, no. And I said, well, I thought that might be the case. <laughs> Here, this is, you know, here's the primer. And so how can you have any, I, I stopped short of challenging him, but the implication, I tried to make it implicit. How can you claim any type of authority in any statement about this subject? How can you write articles for scientific American? And that's the other, my big, this isn't the direction I meant to take this, but as you said, well, this is kind of freewheeling. Yeah. But one of my biggest gripes about people like Michael Shermer is the inane things that they say. Uh, Shermer wrote this article for Scientific American. And um, uh, at some point, he said in this column it, was an, it wasn't an article he had a regular column in scientific american but one of the themes of his column what, column on one occasion was the science starts show me the body it's kind of back you know the old commercial and this may predate you but with the little old lady in the hamburger joint and she looks where's the beef <laughs> yeah exactly where's the beef <laughs> you know you, you got to have some meat to your argument and and so he was saying the science starts once you have a body Okay, well, I you know I understand the the thrust, this this imperative for the physical specimen, and I fully acknowledge that, and I always have. I've never suggested that I'm out to persuade my colleagues on the basis of this evidence alone. But my argument is that's the most let's just say it asinine statement I have ever heard. The science starts when you ask a question. And apply the scientific method method in an attempt to address and answer that question. If you sit around, if you sit around and don't do anything, you know how scientific is that? You wait for you wait for the asteroid to or the meteorite to fall in your lap. You know, um, it. We had a, a, a an extension of that in part on the heels of this visit. As I said, one of my most vocal critics was uh, this instructor in physics department. And he likewise had a column. See, these people that gravitate to this, this type of skepticism are usually people who are very opinionated and have no qualms about sharing their opinions with everyone else. Because of course, theirs is the best opinion right so so he has a column with an opinion on everything and, and he i i became the, the punching bag i was the easy target the straw man you know and so on one occasion even his department chairman of the physics department chimed in but basically the theme was um you know where's they they were rehearsing Shermer's adage the science starts once you have a body So I wrote back a a letter to the editor and and I said, uh, uh, you know, it was a lengthy letter, but but in short, it was, isn't this interesting? Coming from a pair of physicists, I said, show me an atom, show me a black hole, show me a string. You know, I said... I said, most of the phenomenon that you are preoccupied with, you have no corpus delicti. There is no body. And yet you're studying the effects, the influence, the trace on its surroundings. And I said, hmm, doesn't that sound kind of similar to the kinds of evidence that I'm uh, uh, grappling with? (laughs) So it's, uh, it's comical. It's comical in some ways. Anyway, but it,
0: but it must be frustrating.
1: <laughs> well, it is. It is. I mean, I'm to the point where uh, I don't see it as an obstacle. And quite honestly, those who gravitate to that kind of an argument, they're not going to be swayed. They're not sincerely interested. They're not open minded in the least. Um, you know, as far as, again, not, not swayed by to persuade. Sure. Them, but uh swayed in the sense of acknowledging and uh, that there is evidence and it is worthy of attention and engagement um, and so I don't see them as a roadblock or an obstacle I just step around them now I mean it's and and I think that uh, the weight of the evidence that I've presented you know and 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 the uh you know it's it's kind of funny when <laughs> there was a journalist who uh, paid a visit. And uh, she had done her homework a little bit and had asked around and, and it was, you know, she, she, she was quite uh, blunt as well and said, uh, yeah, I've talked to a number of people and you know, there's, there are people on this campus who think that you are just a joke. You're just a laughing stock. What, what do you say to that? And I said, well, I can imagine who you talk to, I said, have, have you looked at my book? She hadn't yet. I said, well, who's, and, and not, this is not as an appeal to authority, but um, just as to who her sources are of information. Um, because uh, the book, I mean, that's why I, I asked if she'd read the book. I said, you need to grapple with the content of the book, which these others have not. But but whose name is on the cover of the book who, with uh, with a glowing endorsement, not of the existence of not not uh, advocating the existence of Sasquatch, but advocating the merits of of a scientific investigation of a fascinating question of natural history. There's Jane Goodall, you know who that is, right? Open up. Who wrote the foreword to my book, George Schaller? You may not recognize him because he is an academic. He's an academic's academic. He's he's the um, natural history, uh, natural historian of the century, basically. Um, and so you should know <laughs> if you're writing a story about natural history, that's the problem is most of the journalistic coverage comes from the, you know, human interest section. And uh, instead of a, a good solid science or natural history perspective. But I said, here's George Schaller, read what he has to say. And then in my paperback, you you open it up and there's two whole pages of endorsements from from various academics, you know, veterinarians, uh, state wildlife agents and on down other professors of various disciplines of biology and anthropology. And I said, you know, who did you talk to an instructor <laughs> in the physics department? <laughs> oh yeah. I would take his opinion over that of, of uh, a world renowned primatologist any day, right? <laughs> no, wrong. So it's, uh, when, when you have that kind of, of, um, Engagement in in on your side of the uh, fence or in in your arena, it it's uh you know the the silly remarks don't stick. You, know, you have you have a teflon code in a way to speak. But the point is, though, more like I said, not to appeal to authority or to individuals. It just shows that there are people with those credentials who have been willing to say publicly that they are very intrigued. They're impressed that this merits scientific. And, and as, uh, as, uh, Schaller said, I think it was, it was long overdue. Why has this been delayed? Why haven't scientists stepped up to to do, undertake this? So, and there's various reasons, obviously that's a sure. whole other discussion, but, um, but in the end, it's it's the evidence. There is a body of evidence. I mean, it's like one of my past chairmen said to me uh, rather bluntly that after all, Jeff, these are just stories. And I said, stories that leave footprints, that shed hair, that void scat, that vocalize, that are eye, that are uh, witnessed by uh, by competent, um, experienced outdoorsmen, etc., and agency personnel. Uh, you know that that. Uh, it's more than stories. (laughs) Yes, the stories are there and we would expect that to be the case. We would expect if, if there is an entity that it has a role in the narrative of the region, both the, both the recent uh, past events, but also the indigenous populations that it would figure. And lo and behold, it does. It figures extremely prominently. And, and uh, we had some examples of that. It was interesting. We, we, uh, there was a, gathering a, a conference of sorts held here in Pocatilla just over this past weekend and we had a surprise presentation by um, a Shoshone woman who wanted to share the uh, native perspective her her pers- people's perspective and she she has a master's degree in in uh, uh, archaeology and anthropology and works for the forest service um the um, you know, doing site interpretation and evaluation, impact statements, and so forth, and uh, it was very interesting to hear her perspective. Uh, it's not often the case that that the um, tribal peoples are willing to share. We're we're in this you know anti-colonialism um, fervor of late, and uh, and it's uh, it becomes a delicate touchy dance to have an intellectual exchange of ideas without uh, without all of the uh, caveats and nods and virtue signaling mm. that goes with some of the some of the silliness today no i shouldn't say that i don't mean to come i, sh- I should be more careful in how i say that uh, there are fundamental issues at play, but there's also uh, extremism, which brings out the least productive behavior in in those involved. So anyway, it's always refreshing when someone can just, you know, can't we just all get along and share our ideas and, and uh, move on together, acknowledging that things have happened in the past and And, uh, but, but we can't change those. Neither of us can change those. So let's move forward. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, with,
0: especially with like some of the tales that we've heard about, you know, all kinds of different creatures, you know, obviously, you know, they have to have had some seed of truth to them. I would like to think.
1: Yeah. 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 There was a, a a friend of mine shared, he, he went to an IMAX theater program, but, and it had this big, um, uh, passage printed up there. There is no history without legend and no legend without history. So you're right. We, 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 we cannot completely divorce ourselves from the storytelling. That's how we assimilate. And that's how we, uh, incorporate our past history and experiences, but likewise, much of the legendary aspect, much of the folklore, is, as you say, rooted in in uh, kernels of truth of real experiences, and and um, you know, in some instances, those real experiences are can be traced, but in others, you know, they disappear back in the mists of of time and and we only have the we only have the uh, projection of that uh, of those events and you know sure they're a little distorted a little embellished a little uh, elaborated upon perhaps but uh, but when you, you when it's it's very easy to compare the case studies of Sasquatch and wild men related um, stories and folklore alongside the embellishments and elaborations that often uh, form the trappings of uh, surrounding other otherwise mundane, you know, a coyote. A coyote takes on this really significant role in the, in the uh, legendary stories, the folklore of, of tribal peoples, the raven, you know. Some people would look at the raven as just a scavenger that's eat, that eats carrion off the highway, roadkill off the highway. But yet, it has all these other aspects. That doesn't mean that crows don't spend time eating roadkill. You know, <laughs> it's a biological organism, and, and anyway, uh, you can still uh, appreciate and recognize the significance that it represents. And the same thing with Sasquatch I mean you know I, and I'm always careful because sometimes I've made the statement in the past that that all of the uh, representations are in fact based on at least otherwise that we're familiar with are based upon uh, real real creatures um, there are obviously some very um, exotic uh, creatures that maybe, are entirely uh mythical and uh, and have no uh root in in reality in which case then you, you have to acknowledge well you know are we are we interpreting uh the the legends correctly mm. and and i wonder about that sometimes because when i hear the native perspective on some of their own stories. It can be quite different, even across just very closely uh, juxtaposed uh, tribes uh, or peoples. And uh, But that usually doesn't mean that, I mean, even if they have contrived some association more recently, you know, like there are some who have challenged whether, for example, the Bukwas, of the, the north is actually a, a Bigfoot, a, a primate kind of like creature. Not mm-hmm. that they would historically or prehistorically have any concept of, of what a primate was, but but instead the bukwas is this kind of pasty creature that has um, emerged when someone gets lost at sea and drowns and then comes up on shore kind of like a zombie doesn't sound much like it, like it has much to do with Bigfoot and yet I've talked to many tribal people who in their minds they are one in the same I mean that's that's their representation of Sasquatch of, of what you call the Sasquatch which isn't even their own term you know to begin with it's an anglicized term that de- is derived from a number of names that have sort of a common uh, ring to them a uh, uh, familiar or a common denominator of, uh, roots and, and, uh, derivation.
0: derivation. Yeah. So. I got to ask, in, in your opinion, we talked about, you know, remaining open to yeah. possibilities or ideas. So, you know, when you say that, how about the folks that maybe are leading either away from the you know, the flesh and bone version of right. we in flesh and right. bone version of Sasquatch.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, it, it has become a very polarizing uh, yeah. split that, uh, and uh, I can remember a number of years ago uh giving a presentation. It was in Hamilton, Montana. And the, uh, the theme of my presentation was, was sort of uh you know, what, what is the biology of, of Bigfoot? Is, is there a justification? And, and I made that point very uh, explicitly at the end of the presentation that there's kind of, we're at a fork in the road and there's a, or or the tracks, (laughs) because I said, you want to be on, you want to be on the train that ultimately is, Uh, that participates in the discovery and understanding of a new biological species, you've got to get your ticket now because there's going to be very little bridge between the two uh, given the very divergent direction this other is going. And, you know, again, it it boils down to the question of who's on the right train. Mm And who's and who's to say who's on the right train and it, it becomes a personal decision and and so you have to decide are you going are you interested in pursuing and applying uh, pursuing a question by applying a methodology that requires objective documentation demonstration of evidence you know an evidence based hypothesis or are you comfortable on the other side with uh, you know a very fanciful, uh, speculative, subjective experience interpretation that um, is essentially impossible to replicate in a in a documented fashion, documentable fashion? Mm. I mean, I, I some people claim to. Have, replicated or, or experienced similar things and they gravitate to one another at least their description of, of their subjective experiences but um but there's just there's just so much that is um, <laughs> uh, about what they're what they're doing that, that can't be and, and in my own experience again my a, a bias emerging from my own experience is that every time I'm anyway involved with those claiming such things there e- they either evaporate under the scrutiny of, of someone evaluating them objectively or they just don't happen they, they just never occur you know the mind speak the the bouncing orbs the this that or the other and I know there are all sorts of of claims uh, uh, I just uh, I'm I'm still asking where's the beef, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, all, all they can show me are the buns, but there's no there's no hamburger patty there to sink my teeth into. So and you know, I tried to to assure people that I'm not prejudicial about it. I mean, I think it would be fascinating. If we discovered that there's a race of beings that can step through a portal from another dimension and interact, it's always, it's always quizzical, the, the, the nature of the interaction. You know, one of the surest ways to uh, challenge someone who claims to have mind speak is just simply ask them, so what's the gist of your conversation? What kinds of things did the Sasquatch talk about? And more often than not, you get the, what I call the, you know, the Miss America answer. Um, The Miss America candidate or, or, uh, yeah. Um, The, uh, you know, it's, it's kumbaya new age mumbo jumbo, you know, or something out of a fortune cookie. Now there was one person gave me a reasonable answer. Finally, uh, at least it was a, It was, it had some potential, I thought, but her point was, well, you know, they don't speak our language. So what they're conveying are basically their, their impressions, their thoughts. And then the person receiving that has to put it in their own words. So when they express it, it may sound kind of funny because that person may not be very articulate or may not be skilled at, at uh, sort of transcribing those mental impressions. I thought mm, that's that makes more sense than 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 the uh, you know uh, these r- strange vo- new age vocabularies <laughs> about striving for world peace and you know you're you're destroying the planet and you must be stewards, responsible stewards, and all all that business. Um, I mean, if that's their if their goal if their purpose on this planet is to safeguard nature and to put humanity back on the bright path i'm afraid i have to say that they're failing miserably <laughs> i mean i mean that's just not uh, not not to sound gloom and doom but but i mean it's just not uh, I think they've, they've just over, been overwhelmed if that's the case by, by uh, human irresponsibility, but anyway,
0: and they don't even have cell phones that we know of. So that's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: they're not scrolling on their social media that we know
1: of. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's uh, so I, uh, yeah, I uh, I'm approaching the subject as an anthropologist, as a biologist. And as I said, I I have yet to experience or to be shown anything that has falsified the more straightforward explanation that what we're dealing with is a creature, a species that is that, that exhibits all of the adaptations that we might expect for a creature of this sort this this uh, extraction this phylogenetic history existing in the rugged mountainous terrain that we find them in you know it's like it's like i tell people you look at that picture over my shoulder there and and even when as an as an 11 year old seeing that it just struck me i mean it was not like an image of godzilla stomping through tokyo it was an image of a creature an animal that was at home in its environment it just seems so natural and so it means like spotting a gorilla on the Virunga peaks you know and as an ecotourist it um, yeah that's that's kind of my impression and so and until such time as someone can can demonstrate something uh convincingly that that uh, there are other dimensions to be understood I've seen, I've seen individuals who it seems to me are seduced into the paranormal arena because they become frustrated by the fact that there are no bodies that we've been unsuccessful in, uh, demonstrating the conclu- ultimate conclusive proof that such creatures may exist. And, uh, and that just, um, you know that that's a decision they've made but i don't i don't think i think that that's the result of not understanding the um the the principles the ecological and biological and so forth the principles that are uh that are there the you know as we were talking about my apologetic explanation for the lack of a physical body and and to others that may be uh, unsatisfactory that may not be sufficient to explain because you know there'll be the the comeback but we have bones and so forth skins in museums of even these rarest of animals but we're always making new discoveries you know there are always new new things that come to the fore that we didn't know just before and uh so that argument in and of itself is not good. The lack of that evidence is, is frustrating. That's the frustration. i do not frustrated by the skeptics, but it's frustrating that, we, that we're facing the challenge of trying to study an animal with all the characteristics that if you ask anyone who studies exotic or rare endangered animals in the field will agree are those that profile the most challenging species to study in the field they're solitary they're nocturnal they're far-ranging they're very generalized uh they're intelligent they're they're uh, all those things make it uh, make it a challenge and so what advice
0: would you give somebody who might just be starting out on their own research maybe their own path of you know pragmatic you know
1: systematic you know <laughs> right right well be sure you read my book <laughs> 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 there's number 1 and uh i tell people that if if you if you contemplate the credible reports of encounters or footprint finds are largely at least encounters let's limit it to that footprint finds if you're diligent get out there you you can find them The uh, but encounters are by far and away by chance; they're happenstance. There's few examples. Patterson Ginland film being one of those, but they didn't just go out and on the first evening run into Sasquatch. They spent you know two and a half day uh, weeks, rather weeks of of difficult slogging, running the roads for miles and miles on horseback or in their truck. <clears throat> and and the conditions were, were favorable to finding sign and footprints and and uh, they were just lucky um so if you are only going to be motivated by immediate gratification this is not the hobby for you <laughs> uh you have to enjoy the process you have to be fascinated by the, um, the journey because, uh, otherwise you'll, you will be frustrated. You will, uh, lose interest. It's, uh, it, I, I've said, it's like me and fishing. I, I'm, I'm not an excellent fisherman, not much of a fisherman at all, but when I ever have fished, if I catch a fish early on, then I'm, I'm hooked. See, it's like that. That's why after 28 years, see my I caught my fish on the first time out, basically, with that remarkable, exceptional set of footprints. That was the fish. And so so once I've caught a fish, I can sit there for the whole afternoon and and wait for the second one. But if I sit there and after an hour, 45 minutes or an hour, two hours, three hours and nothing, well, I I don't last that long. If I don't catch a fish after 15 minutes, 20 minutes, (laughs) then it's like, Hmm, there's gotta be greener pastures around, but better fishing holes somewhere. Let's go find it. And so I pull up stakes and, and go. And, uh, so if, if you're like me and you don't have that, uh, that fish story to start the whole thing out with, then you need to really enjoy, and I do enjoy, I shouldn't say that I don't. I mean, I being out, what a what a what better excuse could you have to get out into into nature and and if if the Bigfoot phenomenon does nothing else uh, uh but that, but but uh motivate an entire generation of people to spend all kinds of time tromping around in the in the woods and camping and, and exploring and uh, et cetera. And then um, determine a location if you can, if you're in uh, fortunate enough to be near an area that has uh, potential as Sasquatch habitat. And the rule of thumb that I suggest, and it's not just plucked out of the air, but it's based on, on studies that have been conducted and published. There's a published paper one uh, at least, that uh, shows the remarkable congruence between bear habitat and Sasquatch. Makes perfect sense, not a surprise, but to actually see it demonstrated and worked out in a uh, systematic way was, was very compelling. So if you're in an area where there is bear habitat, there is a possibility there might be Sasquatch as well. You want to kind of confirm that with a study of the reports that have come out networking with local people, agency personnel, and and uh, law enforcement, and so forth, if you have those opportunities, and then work those areas. Because like we said, it's kind of like a, a lotto ticket. You're not going to, but as rare as a win with a lotto ticket will be, you won't win unless you buy a ticket, buy lots of tickets. So the more time you can spend in the field, the more your chances of success are increased and and then learn the uh regional natural history uh take tracking courses take uh, plant identification classes and uh, look at the distribution of the edibles medicinal plants that are in the region and where do the other wildlife hang out this is the thing when you have uh, someone who goes out on a on a weekly basis, and every weekend, they have Bigfoot activity, as it's termed, which usually means some bump in the night or a, a, an alleged wood knock or something like this. And yet, they don't see a coyote or a fox or a rabbit or a deer uh, or a bear. <laughs> what are the odds that they're going to see that that? Uh, extremely rarer entity, namely a Sasquatch, and so I, I often catch myself um, with that thought when I'm out and you're sitting here thinking, why, why don't I see something? I mean, I spend all this time out here. Why don't I see a Sasquatch? Why don't I bump into one? I'm out here at night. I'm doing this and that, whatever. In the daytime, looking for tracks, and and then it occurs to me, hmm what was the last animal that I saw out here? Am I, you know, am I bumbling around so much that I don't haven't developed the skills? So hunting skills and, and uh, you know, how to sit in the blind, how to, how to decent your clothes. I mean, you're not going to hide yourself from Sasquatch. I don't think just as right. it's very challenging to hide yourself from any other form of wildlife. But if you're, and then, and then having said that on the other, the flip side, the other, Alternative strategy is to make your presence known, make your presence inviting to a somewhat intelligent, curious animal. And uh, either with uh, with the presence of cooking food or uh, bright colors or whatever, instead of trying to hide, trying to blend in. That's why it's kind of, it's funny how sometimes you, you see the enthusiast and they look like some paramilitary operation out there you know i'm all for wearing drab i mean because it's just less obtrusive and less Mm. uh, offensive to the eye to when you're out in the woods to to dress accordingly and and uh behave accordingly but on the other hand there's something to be said for hiking and talking you know singing you know whatever um to attract (laughs) attention and uh, maybe you'll get a visitor to camp to find out what's going on <laughs> anyway. I love that. Yeah. Where can folks find you? Well, the the easiest place probably is, is my Facebook page, which is under my full name, Don Jeffrey Meldrum. And um, uh, I, I try that that is not a personal Facebook it's it's more. It just, I didn't uh, know how to create a celebrity or whatever they call the, right, the right, term right. Um, for, for the, a regular page. But I use that as a bulletin board basically for posting things, upcoming events, and articles that I've come across that are interesting that I'd like to share uh, or other um, discourse that is, has occurred. So that's a good place to, to start. My uh, publications are available on Amazon or also Paradise K. Is the publisher of my field guides and my um, and I do wanted to wanted to plug uh, I've done a, a series of of booklets, activity and learning booklets for young uh, readers and learners, and uh, had the good fortune of hooking up with a excellent illustrator. And so the although it's it's gauged for reading you know beginning readers on up, I. Um, you know, the adults will find it interesting as well. I don't want to eliminate for people this is just for kids, but it has, you know, the potential for coloring. It has mazes. It has, um, uh, matching and word puzzles and it has stickers. <laughs> so it, uh, they, I, I started off, I've always wanted to do something like this and, uh, did a Sasquatch edition had so much fun with that, that, uh, before the artist was even finished with the Sasquatch one, I'd already drafted the Yeti edition. And so he just said, well, keep them coming. <laughs> and so we did all five potential relic hominoids, including um, the Yowie, which was a real challenge. It was kind of fun to do for me um, because it, uh, there's, there's, uh, well, the, the, the page on footprints says it all. And it has a whole collage of various footprints attributed to the Yowie. And no two are the same. No two have the same number of toes. You know, I know some have divergent big toes, some don't. You know, some look like a giant kangaroo or something. It, it's just there is no consistency, which really raises an interesting question about what is the nature of the Yowie? Uh, because the others, not only is there is there a a rather consistent footprint record but the footprints are, are quite distinct and and correlate agree with what those creatures assert to be and so like the almas its footprints look just like the preserved cave footprints of the neanderthal you know and the The uh, abominable snowman, the yeti, the most credible footprints, you know, ignoring the anomaly of the Shipton footprint, but they have divergent big toe like an arboreal ape. And and we think that the, the yeti doesn't live in the snow fields of the high alpine elevations, but rather its footprints are found when it crosses the snowy passes from one temperate forested valley to the next. So this this relic ape species is essentially arboreal, much like a gorilla or a chimpanzee, and the footprint looks like a chunky chimpanzee with stout, shorter fingers, but a divergent, more thumb-like big toe. Anyway, and so on, and um, but see, it's easy to get me going down various paths. <laughs> so great. So the the five uh, the five set uh, uh, can be purchased or individually from. Paradise K or parak.com a publisher in Arcata, California. Um, one other thing I would plug is for those that want um, some current uh, meat, some, uh, <laughs> some beef, um, I edit an, uh, an online scholarly refereed journal, The Relic Hominoid Inquiry, with the assistance of an editorial board. And um, it's, so, so it has a narrow focus, but we've, we've got, uh, you know, we average about oh, 175 to 250 pages a year. We're in our 12th year. Wow. It has research articles, in-depth essay style reviews, uh, commentaries, um, historical items like, and translations of difficult to obtain works like those of Mary Jean Kaufman, the, the Russian investigator who studied the, ALMAs extensively, um, and so on, and, um, and lots of response and dialogue and interaction uh, between authors and commentators. So that's found at um, www.isu.edu RHI for Relic Hominoid Inquiry. If you Google Relic Hominoid Inquiry, you'll get there right off the bat. So um, that's a great source. Uh, and, and while it is a scholarly journal and we do have, you know, scholarly academic standards, it's accessible, uh, uh, especially the editorials and essay style uh, papers are very accessible and profusely illustrated since we, um, you know, don't have the constraint of a print uh, journal with uh, page limits and page costs. Uh, one, I, I push authors to repletely illustrate their their writing and uh, so good high resolution images to go along with those uh, articles. So it would be very uh, edifying to your viewers. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I also couldn't implore people enough to check that out. Uh, definitely Great. George and I have uh, perused that many a time. <laughs>
1: oh, good. Very good.
0: Thanks. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, I really can't thank you enough just for your space, your energy, but just like the work you've been doing for decades now and just your pragmatic approach and, and just your passion. And just sure. thank you for fanning that flame and a lot of sure. other people.
1: Well, and I apologize that we, to, to your listeners too, that we kind of got down the the rabbit hole of skepticism and all that. And I, and I uh, aired some of the dirty laundry. <laughs> 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 Sometime we'll have to get together and, and just focus more specifically on the, the uh, fundamental issues and questions of the science, the current state of knowledge and understanding, uh, and, and the evidence for the existence of Sasquatch. And there you have it.
0: I can't thank Dr. Meltram enough for all his time, energy, and just all the research he's done for decades. If you'd like to find out more... You can find them at facebook.com slash don.j.meldrum also be sure to check out the relic hominoid inquiry at isu.edu slash rhi if you're listening to the podcast we hope you take a moment and rate it we're still a new podcast so you rating it actually helps us reach more people if you're watching take a moment and like the video And leave a comment below. Let us know what your thoughts are. Do you believe in Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti? What are your thoughts? Be sure to hit that notification bell so you can find out about our new bi-weekly release. Thank you so much for watching, listening, and all your support. Till next time, take care of one another and keep thinking for yourself.